if you're wondering what I'm doing there, I'm, I'm turning my, my lock off. I don't want that to go on uh, during the sermon there. So, well, hey, um, I want to begin our time this morning by asking you a few questions. Uh, we're not in Philippians this morning. We'll, we'll start back in Philippians next week in and, and a one very famous passage of Scripture there in chapter 2. Uh, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both the will and the work for his good pleasure. And that is such an important part. Remember, there weren't verses, verse numbers in the original, right? They were just all together. We put those in there to help us find our place. But I wish they would have kept those two together uh, so we don't take them out of context. But we'll be there next week. We're going to be doing something a little bit different this morning. Uh, but let me ask you a few questions. How many of you have ever done something over and over and yet don't understand why you, did it that, why, why you do it that way? I mean, you just do it. Every day you get up and you do a certain act and, and, and you never even probably think about why you do it that way. And, um, or, or maybe you've forgotten why you do it that way. Uh, why do we eat the salad first, the entree second, and dessert last? Why do, why do we do that? Who said we had to do it that way? Right? Some people say when you get older, life's short, eat dessert first. And I'm all for that, especially if it's chocolate. In fact, we could have to go chocolate first, chocolate second, chocolate third, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I eat my share of chocolate when we go on a vacation here. I probably need to lay off a little bit here on the chocolate. Um, but uh, why, why do we do that? Why are you supposed to begin um, buttoning your shirt from the top? That's what my, I've been taught. You spo- I, I don't know why. Why are you supposed to do it from the top? I mean, maybe you know why. Maybe all, my guess is when you do it, you're not thinking about why you're doing it. You're just doing it. Now, if somebody pressed you, okay, this is the reason why. So you don't get to the bottom and they're all out of order. I mean, yeah, but you don't think about that when you're doing it. You just do it that way. Uh, I still do mine from the bottom up. Um, <clears throat> probably just as a uh, rebellious, I don't know. Uh, why do you put the toilet paper roll so that the toilet paper comes over the top or under? Now, we're going to have a debate about that this morning, okay? But why do you do that? And my guess is if I press you, you can say, well, this is why we do it this way. But you don't think about that, do you, when you're pulling it off there? Well, we, every time I pull it we do it this way so it doesn't roll all the way down to the floor or whatever it might be. You never think about that. You just do it because you've always done it. You don't think about why you do the things that you do often. But more importantly, why do we say amen at the end of our prayers? Or why do we stand when we sing? Or why do we greet each other near the beginning of the service? Or, or, or why do we give... Uh, our financial resources to the work of the Lord in the local church. Why, why do we do those things? Why do we teach from the Bible? Why do we have life groups here at Grace? And, and my guess is if we sat back and took some time to think about those things, we could probably come up with pretty good answers for those. We better be able to come up with answers for those. But when we're doing them, we're not thinking necessarily why we do them that particular way. Well, I would guess that everyone here gathered this morning would say the questions I just presented there, not necessarily the eating questions, but the ones about why we say, those are important questions. We should know why. But we're not going to have a chance this, this morning to answer all those questions of why we do those things that way. Um, and maybe some of those things you're thinking, we just do them because we do them, and we don't have a reason, but we want to have a reason. So instead, I want to a- ask and answer some questions surrounding what is called the Lord's Supper or Communion. I want us to know why we do what we do. I want us to know why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, how to celebrate the Lord's Supper, all those things. And um, many of you have partaken of the Lord's Supper for years. Many of you have. Maybe you just started doing that. 
Maybe you just came to know the Lord and you start, started participating in, in that thing that the Lord gave us. Or, 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 but my question is, do we understand why we do what we do? And maybe you can say, yeah, I can, I can answer that question. Or maybe you, we need to be reminded, right, of why we do what we do. I love First and Second and Third Peter and 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 First Second Third Peter. First and Second Peter. It's First Second Third John. First Second Peter, because in those two small little letters, those epistles that Peter writes to a struggling churches uh, there in Macedonia, he or Asia Minor, really, um, he he uses this word remember or remind often. If you're like me and you like to highlight and all those kind of things, you could go through and one of the main words in those two epistles is remember or remind. Why would Peter use these, this word remember or remind often? Well, think about who Peter was. Peter was one of the three, Peter, James, and John, that were the tightest with the Lord Jesus. Spent the most time, most intimate time of all the twelve. Walked with him faithfully for three years. And yet near the end of Jesus' life, Peter forgot. Now, he may not have forgotten intellectually, but he forgot who Jesus was. Remember, Peter is the one that said, said hey, who, does people say, who do people say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon, or Peter, son of John, or Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah, all right? For you, the Lord revealed this to you. Peter said that. And then just, just not very long after that, he denied the Lord three times. I think one of the reasons that Peter says, I write this to remind you in and, and, and way of remembrance is because he forgot. And he knew that all of us have a tendency to forget. And we need to be reminded afresh of things that we do as believers of why we do them or how we do them or what manner we do them in. And so that's why I want to take some time this morning to, to deal with the Lord's Supper um, now, we're not going to answer every question about the Lord's Supper this morning. We don't have time to do that. Uh, but we're going to, I think, cover enough that we'll sufficiently understand the main aspects of the Lord's Supper. So let's turn our attention to the only source of authority for the Lord's Supper, which is the Word of God. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 26. And as you do that, um, I just want to say that the reason that we're looking at the Word or the, the whole ultimate outcome of spending this time together uh, looking at the Lord's Supper this morning is so that the Lord would enable us to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a way that honors him. And in that our desire, we want to honor him as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, or communion, depending on what you want to call it. And we're going to do that by asking four questions, asking and also answering. Wouldn't do any good if we just asked a question, would it? Let's ask the four questions and go home. Let's ask and answer all four questions so that we might honor the Lord as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, not just today. But every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that we would be reminded of these truths. So the first question to consider is, what is the Lord's Supper? What is the Lord's Supper? Now, this is going to be the longest answer of the four questions. Just, just so you know that, what is the Lord's Supper? We'll spend more time here than the other three questions. But in order to answer this question, we need to look at one of the accounts where Jesus uh, gives the Lord's Supper. Where he celebrates the Lord's Supper with the disciples. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, all give an account um, of Jesus presenting this. Actually, in John, you have no account necessarily of specifically of the Lord's Supper. Um, now, it's, it's maybe alluded to a couple times, but you don't have this. They sit down and they go through this. Also, in 1 Corinthians, um, we'll see a little bit later, Paul also reminds us what Jesus taught about the Lord's Supper. But let's look at Matthew 26 here and look at Matthew's account of this. Now, the first thing I want us to notice is the context 
of when Jesus establishes the Lord's Supper. We want to see the context of when he establishes the Lord's Supper. So look with me there at verses 17 through 19 of Matthew 26. It says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So what's the context here in which Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper? It's one word. It's a compound word. Passover. The Passover. This is the context in which he institutes the Lord's Supper. Now what was the Passover? What was the beginning of what's called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread? And that was really a whole feast of celebrating the Passover. But the Passover was a celebration of God delivering the nation of Israel from the bondage of the Egyptians. Now it's interesting in God's providence, we just read about that in Acts 7. That wasn't planned. That's where we are in Acts. But we just read about that in Acts 7 and, and how the Lord delivered them. So the Lord, to deliver them, sent 10 plagues on the Egyptians. And we're not going to go through all 10 plagues and what they mean this morning. But the last plague was the plague of the death angel. And the death angel would come on that particular night and all the firstborn Egyptians and Israelites firstborn animals and firstborn humans all right would be taken they would be put to death but he told the israelites if you would sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the door frame basically of your house then when the death angel comes and sees that he will here it is pass over that house now, I remember the first time as a kid, I finally got that. We talked about the Passover and all those kind of things. And, and, and finally, somebody slowed it down a little bit for me, which I always need. A little slow it down, all right? And they talked about it. And now it will pass. Oh, oh, the Passover. That's why it's called the Passover. Now, maybe all of you all knew that already, and, and you got that a lot quicker than I have. But it's called the Passover because the death angel passed over the houses that had sacrificed the lamb and put the blood on the frame of the door of their house. So after this plague, God used Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. Now we're skipping a lot of things, right? Through the Red Sea on dry ground and then into their journeys for 40 years in the wilderness, ultimately to the promised land. But each year the Israelites were to celebrate this act of God, this thing called Passover. He delivered them from the bond of, bondage of Egypt. They were to, to continually celebrate this every single year. So Jesus... Being a good Jewish man, all right, and with the Jewish men that were with him, he has Peter and John. Now, we learned that from Luke, that John was also with Peter. He has him go ahead, find a place where he and the 12 can celebrate the Passover together. Now, now let, let me read the rest of our passage here in, in, in um, Matthew 26. We're going to look at verses 20 through 30. I'm going to read through this, and I'm going to highlight some things i come back and highlight some things. So just beginning here in verse 20. Now when evening came, Jesus was climbing at the table with the 12 disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. So the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written to, of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, 
you have said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So as we, we look at this account a little bit more closely, just remember that the context is the Passover when this is happening. All the way down through here, the context is that they're celebrating the Passover together, the Passover meal together. So as we walk down through here, um, I'm going to give a brief overview of the Passover. Now, I'm not going to go into detail on all the things of the Passover. And some of you actually have, have had what's called a Paschal meal. You've actually celebrated the Passover meal and gone through all the different steps. I'm not going to hit all those this morning. I'm just going to give some highlights, a, a big outline of what that looks like because it's significant for us to understand what Jesus is doing here, taking it from the Passover to the Lord's Supper. We have to understand the Passover. We have to understand what they're doing here. Now, you, you can gather a lot of this, and I'll bring in some of the other Gospels in here, but you gather it when you look at all the Gospels to see all that happened. So the entire Passover meal, just let me say this, is an amazing picture of the grace of God. Now, we're not commanded to celebrate the Passover meal anymore. Why would we? The Lamb has come. But it doesn't say we shouldn't. And we can't do that because it's a great picture. And it's kind of a great teaching of how the Messiah, beginning in Genesis 3.15, was promised at, right after sin that the Messiah would come to save his people from their sin. And you get this great picture in the, the Passover meal of it was always about Jesus. And Jesus was coming. And he was going to come and fulfill this thing. So it's fun to go through that because you get this wonderful picture of who Jesus was and what he came to do. But let me just consider a couple of things when we think about the Passover and the Lord's Supper. We think about their context. Now, the Passover... Think about this. 400 years of silence. We, we just read that in Acts 7. 400 years of silence during Egypt's slavery. And when I say that, in, in some ways, um, God was at work definitely through, through this 400 years, okay? But we don't have a lot recorded of that 400 years. We had the last bit of it when Moses came on the scene. But after Joseph, there's 400 years of silence, in a sense. And, and what delivered God's people from the 400 years of silence? The Passover lamb, a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, delivered the people. Now think about this. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's about 400 years of silence. And what delivered, ultimately, God's people from the penalty of sin and death? A blood sacrifice. The crucifixion gave them freedom. You see the parallels already? The Passover, now, now the Lord's Supper, which pointed to the cross. And this should have clued the Israelites in on who Jesus was. Uh, some of them it did, some of them it didn't. But the Passover was meant not only to look back at God's amazing work in delivering the people out of Egypt, but also, and more importantly, and ultimately, the Passover was always more about what was to come than what had happened. It was pointing to what was to come, which was Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb. Now, one of the keys to understanding the Passover and its relationship to the Lord's Supper is to understand there were four cups of wine used in the Passover. Uh, meal and they kind of serve as an outline of the Passover meal so after a couple of preliminary things you, you drink from the first cup of wine this first cup was called the cup of blessing or, or the cup of sanctification symbolizing joy and, and the drinking of this cup is actually recorded in Luke's account 
all right, 22, 17 through 18. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom comes. All right, so here's the first cup. And this was followed by washing of hands, uh, breaking. Now they had three pieces of matzah uh, bread. It's kind of a harder um, unleavened bread. And they had three pieces. And they would take the middle piece out and they would break the middle piece. Three pieces, Father, Son, second person of the Trinity, Holy Spirit. They would take out the middle piece and break the middle piece. And then they would hide that. Then there was a dipping of the parsley in the salt water, symbolizing the tears shed by the Jewish people when they were in in slavery. Then there was the second dipping, symbolizing the Israelites going into the Red Sea Sea and coming out free. There's the two dippings there of... Uh, in, in the salt water, some symbolism there. We won't go into that. But look again at, at 26, 23 here in Matthew. Look what it says. And he answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. What bowls is talking about? It's talking about the dipping of the parsley right there. And this reminds us and shows us that Jesus, they were celebrating the Passover meal together. This is what was happening. And we got we to see this so you see the significance. And this was going to be a totally new thing for the disciples. It was changing everything for them. As they were working through the Passover, the Passover became brand new. All right, so we know that's what they're doing. And it was followed, this, this, this first cup and the, the washing of the hands, the breaking of the matzah and the dipping of the, the, the parsley and the salt water uh, was followed by some singing. And many believe that the two psalms that they sang are Psalm 113 and 114. And that's kind of continued throughout the history of the nation of Israel. Uh, following this was the second cup. And this is a cup of the plagues, or the cup of wrath. And it was spilled on the hands. And at, during this time, they would tell the story of the Passover. They would eat the meal, which included a lamb. And then it was time to find the hidden piece of, ma- the hidden piece of matzah. Or, or bring it, in, in disciples' case, they didn't really hide it. They just brought it out. Okay, they broke it, they set it down, and they brought it back out. All right, so it's time to bring that back out. And this is followed by a blessing. Now listen to this blessing that was given at this time. Blessed are thou, O Lord. Our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Who brings forth bread from the earth. Now, the picture later on, they would hide this, and they would bring this. All right, now they put them in little, you know, things, and they hide them, and they pull it out. And it's a picture that Jesus was put into the earth and was taken back out of the earth. Even though he was broken, he was resurrected. All right, there's always this pointing to that very fact. Then they take the matzah and they broke it, break it and pass it around to everyone on the table. Now look at verse 26 in our passage of chapter 26 of Matthew. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after blessing it, he broke it, this was the, the piece of matzah, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. In Luke, uh, his account reads this, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now I want you to notice a couple of things here. Which is given for me. Notice it doesn't say, which was broken for me. Sometimes you hear people, his body was broken. It wasn't broken. To fulfill the prophecy, no bone of Jesus would be broken. It was given for us. Now you could say it was broken in the sense it was broken down and died, but he, nothing was broken on Jesus. And it was given, I love this, think about it, given for us, or think about it this way, given in the place of us. He died so that we might go free. He took the penalty we deserved upon himself. His body was given for us or on behalf of us. It's called, the big word is the substitutionary atonement 
of Jesus Christ. He was our substitute. And that is huge. Those are fighting words right there. Those are, you talk, we talk about first tier things. That's a first tier thing. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. That he died in our place. You can never give that hill up. Because that's the difference between heaven and hell. Right there. And because he died in our place, we can have heaven. Well, immediately following the eating of this bread was the third cup, the cup of redemption. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul refers to this as the cup of blessing. In the same chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21, he calls it the cup of the Lord. Uh, now, the cup of redemption was well known by the Israelites. Why? Because it was through the lamb and its shed blood, means life was given on their behalf, that they would be redeemed. They would be bought away, be taken away, all right, from the wrath of God that night, from the judgment of God. And they knew about the cup of redemption. This cup was also used when a young man asked a young woman to marry him. Any of you all thinking about proposing here with our, all these young people here, this may be a good way to do it. That'd be unique because everybody nowadays, you all see this, I mean, it's like top the next guy. I mean, I, what are they going to be doing? Okay, we're going to fly it to Hawaii. And in the little shell, four miles down the beach is going to be this ring. I don't know, it just gets crazier and crazier you know you got to be so creative so if you did this you'd be more creative than any guy because that had been done in thousands of years probably but what, what would happen is he would take this cup and, and and he would ask for her hand in marriage and he if she accepted she would show it by drinking of the cup this this cup of redemption and he then paid her father and some of you guys are thinking you like this part right a bride or redemption price to redeem her to, to in a sense buy her now be careful here don't take it to that far extreme all right but to, to give a redemption bride price or redemption price when she accepted he the, here's what happened the lead, the groom would leave and go home and prepare his home or his place for her and then he would go back and get her and bring him to bring her to himself does that sound familiar at all does this sound familiar? Just in case it doesn't, I want you to look here in the Gospel of John 14, 2-3. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Wow. All of this, the cup of redemption was pointing ultimately that this is what Jesus would do. He's the groom, right? The church is the bride of Christ. And he paid the redemption price of his life so we might be his bride and be brought to the place that he prepares for us. Man, that's good news. I don't want to bit you. This is getting me pretty excited. This is amazing. So it's this third cup that Jesus drank with the 12 disciples, which pointed to the fact that he was going to pay the redemption price for them. This was the cup that they drank together here. Now, this is, is where we, we, we see this in verses 27 through 29. Look there again. And when he had taken the cup, this is the third cup. And given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So following the third cup of Passover was a searching for Elijah, who was the one promised to come before the Messiah and herald that he was coming. He was to prepare the way of the Lord. Is what Elijah, one who come like Elijah. And we understand on time ago that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of this. He was the one who came in the spirit of Elijah and prepared the way for the Lord. If you remember, we went through the Gospel of John. Now, I look back. Uh, this was actually John chapter 1. This was over <coughs> three and a half years ago when we were in John 1. So it's been a while. But just remember that when, when, when John saw Jesus coming, 
he declared this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Elijah proclaimed, he prepared the way, and when the, the Messiah came on the scene, John, when we saw this in, in the Gospel of John, written by John the Evangelist, here's what happened. John the Baptist went like this, and Jesus went like this, and John just said, he's here. It's not about me. It's about him. That's what he did. And so this is searching of Elijah that points ultimately to John the Baptist that points to Christ. Then after the searching for Elijah, we have the fourth cup, the cup of praise. Now, this was a time to praise the Lord for all that he did, was doing, and was going to do in the life of his people. Now some say that Jesus did not drink of this cup um, on that last night. This is not directly spoken in scripture. It might be inferred, but it's not that big of a point. It doesn't change what happened here that night. So just so you know that if you think, well, yeah, well, Jesus didn't do that, well, you'd be hard-pressed to show a verse that says that specifically. It might be inferred, but it's not direct, but it doesn't change what happened. Now, this would be followed by more singing, okay, which is what the disciples did in verse 30. Look there. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, don't get all caught up. They sang a hymn. They didn't sing a chorus, all right? So we should only sing hymns, right? That's not exactly what that's saying, okay? Sometimes hymn has a lot broader view than just what we, that's what we found, and our hymns were different than their hymns too. So, uh, just so, just so you know that, all right? So, based on this understanding of what Jesus did with his disciples on this night, the night that he was betrayed, we can answer the first question, right? What is the Lord's Supper? It's the fulfillment of the Passover. This account is the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper. That's what we have here in the account of the Gospels. Here Jesus ends the old covenant and ushers in the new covenant. And I would, in some ways, I would love to have been there and understood what I know now and love to have been there when this happened. Because this is the promise of the new covenant that was promised all throughout the Old Testament. It was just, it kept getting bigger and bigger, their understanding of it from Genesis 3.15 all the way through in the new covenant mentioned at Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah. You see this new covenant that he would, it would be different than the old covenant. He would actually dwell inside of them and give them a new heart and forgive their sins. And this is what he's doing. No longer are we on the old covenant. I'm ushering the new covenant, the promise of the new covenant, what you've been waiting for. And at this night, they didn't get it, but soon they would. And, and it was also understood that the, the, the first, from, from the very first Passover to this time, that God delivers from judgment through a substitute. This is important. He delivers through a substitute. We just mentioned that. In the Passover, it was a lamb. Now listen, yet, this is very important to understand, yet animals never, ever forgave people of their sins. A lot of people say, well, the only difference in the Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus, when he died on the cross, he, his sacrifice forgave us of our sins. That's true. But the Old Testament, they say, well, the animals, that's what forgave people of their sins. No. The animals, the death of the animals never forgave people of their sins. It was always pointing to the ultimate sacrifice. Let me just show you. How, how do you know that? Prove that. Well, that's easy. Here we go. I'm glad you asked. Hebrew 10.4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is all talking about under the old covenant. All right? And, and the, the people in the, the, the book of Hebrews are being tempted to go back under the old covenant and under the law. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't do that. Why? Because the blood of goats and bulls cannot forgive your sins. The ultimate one has come who can forgive your sins. Trust in him. The Passover lamb, the ultimate one, Jesus has come. And that's what the Passover is always pointed to. 
Well, on that night before he was betrayed, when celebrating the Passover feast with his disciples, listen to this. He ate the lamb, then he became the lamb. Jesus ate the lamb, then he became the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Well, bottom line, the Lord's Supper is a celebration of the Lord Jesus instituting the new covenant where he gives people a new heart and forgives their sins and gives them new life. One person said it well. God forgave sinners before Christ died. God forgives sinners since Christ died. But God forgives all sinners because Christ died. Say that again. God forgave sinners before Christ died. God forgives sinners since Christ died. But God forgives all sinners because Christ died. If anybody's sin was forgiven in the Old Testament, it's because they were looking forward to what Christ would do. If we, for our sins are forgiven now, it's because we look, for, for, we look back to what Christ did. But it's all because of Christ. Well, that's the first um, question, and that's the longest. All right? Second question, why celebrate the Lord's Supper? This, uh, to help us understand this, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. <clears throat> and I do this because there's more than two or three verses I want you to see here. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Turn over to your right there. 1 Corinthians 11. Um, and in giving instruction to the church of Corinth about the Lord's Supper, notice what Paul writes here. And we're going to start in verse 23 and read now through verse 26. 11, 23, 1 Corinthians 11. For I just received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. For do this in remembrance of me. Uh, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the first reason we see to celebrate the Lord's Supper is because it was instituted by Jesus. So the first reason why we celebrate it, because Jesus said so. It was instituted by Jesus. Notice in verse 23, Paul says that he is passing on what the Lord passed on to the original 12 minus 1, 11, who passed it on to others. That's what he's doing to the next generation. And also notice in verse 26 what he says. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. Often. Not only did he institute it, but he also instituted the Lord's Supper to be continued. It wasn't a one-time thing. As often as you do this, meaning you should do it, continue to do it. Not When I'm gone, keep doing this. It's instituted by the Lord. So not only to celebrate the Lord's Supper because it was instituted by Jesus, but secondly, we're to celebrate the Lord's Supper because in it we remember Him. In the Lord's Supper, we remember Him. It was instituted by Him and we remember Him. In taking of the bread, representing His body, in, in taking of the cup, representing the blood of the new covenant, Paul tells us in verses 24 and 25 here that Jesus said we do this in remembrance of Him. We do it so we can remember what he did for us. And there's many past scriptures we go to, the, to, to, to be re- reminded of what he did for us. But one of my favorites is 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, that we might be, for us, sorry, he made him who knew no sin on our behalf so that, listen to this, so that, here's the reason that he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteous of God in him. That's something to remember, isn't it? This is what he did. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember that he did this for us. I think that um, John MacArthur sums this up uh, very well about remembering the crucifixion uh, in the Lamb of God when he says, 
this. God treated Jesus on the cross as if he lived your life. So he could treat you as if you lived his. God treated Jesus on the cross as if he lived your life. So that he could treat you as if you lived his. Remember this. Remember this is what he did on our behalf. Well, not only are we to celebrate the Lord's Supper because it's instituted by Jesus and in it we remember him, but there's a third reason we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's, it, it is a form of proclaiming him. It's a for, form of proclaiming him. So we remember it. It's instituted by Jesus. We remember Jesus and we proclaim Jesus. Notice in verse 26 from 1 Corinthians again, it says, For as often as you do this, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is first a proclamation of what he did on the cross. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are basically telling with conviction the gospel message. We're getting ready to proclaim the gospel message here together in a few minutes. There's going to be some proclamation happening by us taking the Lord's Supper together. We proclaim his death. We proclaim what happened on the cross. That we believe in it. We celebrate it. That's what we proclaim. Well, not only is this pro- proclaiming the cross, but secondly, it's a proclamation of his return. Notice that phrase, until he comes. We're proclaiming he's going to come again. He promised to come again. In, in celebrating, we're, we're, we're proclaiming that he's going to keep his promise, which we saw earlier, and I'll show it to you again. That he's going to, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you so, for, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may, there you may be also. We proclaim this every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Well, that's the second question. Third question concerning the Lord's Supper. Now, this is the shortest of all the question answers. Who is to celebrate the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is re- restricted to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ to be made right with God and be forgiven their sins. It's reserved for Christians. You see that all through the book of Acts. You see it all through the New Testament. It's not for non-Christians. I'm just throwing that out here. I'm not trying to be offensive. It's for Christians, those who have been forgiven. So children, if they don't know Christ, are not to celebrate the Lord's Supper. What do they have to celebrate? Adults who do not know Christ are not to celebrate the Lord's Supper. What do they have to celebrate? Nothing. Now, we encourage parents, right, with your children in here, to, to talk about the cup, to talk about the bread, to talk about what this points to and what we're doing. It's a great way to share the gospel, and we always encourage that here at Grace. But it's reserved, and you, it's all through the New Testament, it's reserved for Christians to celebrate what Christ has done on our behalf. Fourth question, how do we to celebrate the Lord's Supper? Okay, how? Uh, first, we're to celebrate it together. There's never an instance in the New Testament where someone celebrates the Lord's Supper alone. Ever. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul rebukes some of the believers for not considering others and waiting on others in the Lord's Supper. Later on, this same chapter, and then verse 33 says, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for And the insinuation all through the New Testament is that we do this together corporately. It's not an individualistic thing that we do. We do it together. Secondly, we celebrate it regularly. Uh, Paul just says here... Um, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup. There's no specific command about how often. Here at Grace, we do it once a month. We used to always do it on the first Sunday of the month. This is the second Sunday of the month. So what happened? Well, with our new schedule, so people who are working in the back with our children on the first Sunday of every month, 
If we did that, they would never get to celebrate this. So we're going to alternate between first and second. So we're going to do it on the first and second now. All right, but it doesn't tell us how often, but we've chosen to do it at least once a month. Some of our life groups do it together. We do it some, on, on Christmas Eve, on Good Friday sometimes. We do it other times. We do it often throughout um, the, the, the year, and we do it regularly. Um, thirdly, we are to celebrate not only regularly, but humbly. Look with me again at 1 Corinthians 11. Look at verses 27 through 30. What it says there, Therefore, who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who dr- eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment on himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick as a number sleep. We will humbly examine ourselves to see if there's any known sin that we have not confessed, and then confess that sin and repent of that sin. And notice in verse 29, look what it says there again. For he who eats and drinks, eats drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. What does it mean to judge the body rightly? What does it mean to judge the body rightly? Now immediately we go back to verse 27 and it says be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord if we don't judge the body rightly. Now obviously it's talking about, it could be talking about the body of Christ and his blood that was shed for us but I think if you look at the context of, of chapters 10 and 11 it's also referring to the body of Christ that are made up that make up the body of Christ and since the church. Now, why do I say that? There's an overall, lack, you read those two chapters, there's an overall lack of love between the, some of the believers, between the body of Christ. Paul says in these chapters to come to the Lord's table and say that you love God and you don't love your brother, you don't put the other people in the body before yourself, is impossible. In fact, your lack of love for your brother shows a lack of love for God which shows a complete misunderstanding of the cross. So we don't judge the body rightly. Yes, we judge what Christ did for us, but also judge the body rightly in the sense amongst each other. Then we can partake of the Lord's Supper and be guilty of doing it with the wrong heart and miss the whole reason of doing it. So we need to humbly examine ourselves and confess and repent of any known sin against the Lord or anyone else in the body of Christ. Fourthly, we're to celebrate it expectantly. Now, what do I mean by expectantly? Uh, This has to do with what happens in the Lord's Supper. Let me, let me phrase it another way. Is the, the Lord's Supper a means of receiving grace? How many of you all heard that? It's a means of receiving grace. So let me answer that question two times. First, let me say, no. That's the answer. First, if one means that we are actually taking the physical body and blood of Christ, like transubstantiation or consubstantiation, where the, the elements become the body and the blood, all right? And, and also in those elements, there's forgiveness of sin. Nowhere in the New Testament is that ever taught. So I answer the question, is it a means of receiving grace? If we mean that, no. Let me ask the question again. Is the Lord's Supper a means of receiving grace? Yes. How contradictory. Yes. Well, let's define what I mean by yes. First of all, let me say this. For fear of anyone thinking that we... We might believe some strange, mysterious thing in the transformation of the stuff that's in here. And woo, all right, some goofy thing like that, some mystery. We've run the other way, and we say the, the furthest place that the Lord Jesus is ever present is in the Lord's Supper. Nothing really happens there. We just kind of take it and ho-hum. Now, I, I, I listen to what Millard Erickson says about this when he writes. 
It says, out of zeal to avoid the conception that Jesus is present in some sort of magical way, some have sometimes gone to such extremes as to give the impression that the one place where Jesus most assuredly is not to be found is in the Lord's Supper. This is what one Baptist leader termed as the doctrine of the real absence of Jesus Christ. Now, there's kind of a play on words, because some people talk about the real presence of Jesus Christ, all right? And, and we've taken it, some people have taken it so far that it's like the last place you could ever find Jesus would be in the Lord's Supper. But Jesus is most assuredly present in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Why do I say that? Because he said he would be with us always to the end of the age. He's here. He is here. And, and yes, celebrating the Lord's Supper is a means of receiving grace. And any time we can focus on the cross and what he did for us and be reminded he forgave us our sins on the cross, that's a means of grace. He's giving us a gift to be reminded of that so we not celebrate. That's a gift. That's what the word grace means is gift. And yes, it means receiving grace and that we examine ourselves and confess and repent of sin against the Lord and others. That's a gift from God. that He gives us this time that we might receive his grace on this, in this manner and repent of our sin. So yes, in those ways, it's definitely the, 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 there is a means of grace that we receive through celebrating the Lord's Supper. The fifth way in which we are to celebrate the Lord's Supper is joyfully. Just as they did in Matthew 26. After the fourth, the, the fourth cup, they celebrated, they sang, they celebrated what the Lord did for them joyfully. So with this understanding of the Lord's Supper, I'm asking the music team to come back up. Let's celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. According to what the Word of God says. And let's remember those things. There's not going to be a communion devotion. I just gave a 45-minute communion devotion. All right? So... As the music team comes and begins to pray, I'm also going to ask those men to ask to come and serve uh, the Lord's Supper, the elements, if you would come up here. And let's all hold the elements so we can take them together to symbolize our unity as a body of Christ. But let's take the time as, as the music team sings this song. At the end of the song, I'll come back up and we will take the elements together. All right, so just hold on to them as you receive uh, the elements. this side he's over there.
has done for us so on that night that he was betrayed he did break that that middle piece of the matzah and he broke it and he blessed it and he passed his disciples and he said take eat this is my body that was given for you and in the same way he took that cup the third cup the cup of redemption and oh, as we look back, and if we could have stepped back there with the same information we have now, we may have stood up and become charismatic and jumped up and down and yelled and hallelujah, the Lamb has come. The redemption price we've all been waiting for has come. And He's come. And we celebrate. We celebrate the cup of redemption together. He said, take this. Drink of it, all of you. This is the covenant the blood of the new covenant. I've given my blood. Amen. Now, Lord, as we uh, continue to celebrate through song, may we sing from the bottom of our heart in celebration, just like they did for, from when the Passover began, the disciples did the first Lord's Supper. May we celebrate as we sing your praises together. In Jesus' name, amen.